Shut Up and Wrestle, a wrestling history podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 96, which is part two of my ongoing discussion of the 2023 Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame ballot with Mike Sempervivi, my guest and my colleague as well. If you haven't had a chance to listen to last week's episode 95, part one, you might want to do that before you listen to this, which is part two, the continuation of our highly enjoyable and long-winded discussion that I'm sure you're going to continue to love. Before we get to that, a few quick items that I want to go over. First of all, I wanted to make mention of our Facebook group. I'm very proud of this. I know every week I ask people to check out Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon on Facebook. But I recently had a post that's gotten so much, um, I guess what the kids refer to as engagement. I've gotten quite a bit of it. Uh, It's really taken on a life of its own. It is a post that I put out there, and it really didn't even have much to do with anything that's been mentioned in any of the episodes. But it's speculation that I've been doing on the potential, the, the lost, the missed opportunity of doing a Bruno San Martino versus Hulk Hogan dream match in the Northeast in the WWF of the mid-1980s. I postulated this idea of what could have been done for a regional kind of mega house show, like the big event that was done in Toronto, that they could have done potentially in a baseball stadium in the Northeast, pitting Bruno San Martino, the returning legend, against the WWF world champion at the time, Hulk Hogan. Anyway, if you go to the Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon, you will see that it's gotten hundreds of comments. It's been shared so many different times. It's getting commented on by people who aren't even members of the group. I don't even think they're listeners to the show, but it's just very cool to see something mentioned in our Facebook group getting this kind of traction. So just another reason to join the Facebook group if you haven't already. Shut up and wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. That way you could let me know whether you think that my idea is a cool one or if it just stinks and never should have happened, which many people are letting me know as we speak. So anyway, check out the Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. Also want to mention the new issue of Inside the Ropes magazine, issue number 39 with L.A. Knight on the cover. I've got an article in there on the 40th anniversary of the first Starcade, which we just recently passed that 40th anniversary on November 24th. And I got into the entire history of Starcade, the whole history, uh, I believe it's 17 years of Starcade in Jim Crockett promotions in WCW. So check that out. I hope you enjoy that article. Inside the Ropes, number 39, available at InsideTheRopesMagazine.com. A quick update on Irresistible Force, The Life and Times of Gorilla Monsoon. I've now completed two chapters. Finished chapter two, which looks at Gino's Italian-American heritage, which I know a lot of us knew that about him, but not a lot was known about his family and how they came to the United States. Um, Spoiler alert, they did not come from Manchuria. But when you read this uh, chapter of the book, you will learn about his family history. And then I'm going to get into the next chapter, which I hope to jump into this week, which will be on the childhood, the early years, the high school career of Gorilla Monsoon and how he first got involved with amateur wrestling and kind of growing up in the 40s and 50s. That sort of thing will be covered in chapter three of Irresistible Force. I also want to mention 
and I don't want to jinx this, but I am in the midst of planning a visit, which I have to say is long overdue, a visit to New Jersey to spend a little bit of time with Maureen and Valerie Morella, the wife and daughter of Gorilla Monsoon. We're going to hopefully look at some old photos and family mementos and I really thought I I can't really write a book like this without making a trip like that at least once. It's only a couple of hours away from where I live. So that is on the docket. It will most likely be happening after the holidays in January. I will keep everyone posted as to how that goes. But right now, let's get to this episode 96. We, as I said last week, this was originally planned as a one-part episode talking about the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame ballot from this year. But we had so much to say that in order to maintain the structure and the format of this show in the digestible pieces that I like to put it out there, it made sense to do it as a two-part episode. You'll also notice, as I said last week, it is slightly out of date because we recorded this before the new Hall of Famers for this year were announced. Dave Meltzer did it a little earlier this year than he normally does. So it kind of caught me a little off guard. I was originally intending to post this interview before the Hall of Famers were announced, but that's fine. I think as you listened to last week, and if you check out this week's, you'll see the conversation is still highly relevant and well worth your time. So I hope you enjoy part two of my in-depth discussion on the 2023 Hall of Fame ballot with Mike Sempervivi, which I'll take you to right now. I think that how somebody is booked, again, because it's wrestling, because it is pro wrestling, how somebody is booked has to factor in uh, to a certain degree. Like, um, and I think that's where it benefits somebody like Roman Reigns. I mean, to me, it's again, it's like you're talking about somebody, whether you like his matches or not, or but you're talking about somebody who has who has been the biggest star, current star in pro wrestling, at least for the last three years, has been at the very top of the most prominent company in the entire industry for years, um, has been booked as strong as you can possibly be booked for years. Um, I don't see, like, that has to count for something. Like, that's the reason why I um, I put Goldberg on my ballot this year, and I hadn't done it in years past. And part of that was for me getting more options on the modern performers, getting more you know, feeling like I don't want to take votes away from the historical people. I didn't feel that way this year because of the way the categories were broken down. And I voted for him. And, you know, you get people who say, well, he sucked in the ring. He was this. He was that. He couldn't do this. He couldn't do that. He was just positioned this way. And I'm like, yeah, but that's important because it's wrestling. You know, he was positioned as the biggest. He was WCW's biggest star uh, of a certain period. It didn't last long. I get it. But he was a very big deal in the business. He transcended. Um, so that's why I look at him as somebody who deserves to go in, not because I think he's, you know, the second coming of Billy Robinson or something, you know? <laughs> no, but like people like CM Punk and Goldberg and Becky Lynch got over in spite of what the machine wanted to do to them. And that is one of the bigger things. Cause yeah, for all the push that Goldberg got, look at the environment that he was operating in and he did not do everything correctly and no he was not very good in the ring but it's also one of those things where you know he was he the ultimate warrior no and you know i think a lot of people probably put them in the same category because for the most part it was about the same amount of years that they had on top and were a huge thing but i think you know what helps goldberg is him coming back and again i think softening understanding what the business was a little bit more you know kind of softening his image and things like that but he transcended out as well too and he was such a big deal again i don't he's always one of those people i i think about and then never end up scratching on there but as time goes on and you kind of look at that era and you uh, to me again it's it's a you can really make a case it's like making the case for the von erics in Dallas, you know, because essentially you're voting on Carrie, Dev, Kevin, and David. You know, are were Carrie and Kevin exciting in the ring? Yeah, you could say that. They weren't anywhere near the worker that David was. I mean, my God, the, you know, the potatoes that Kevin would dish out, 
you know, is, is a Thanksgiving meal. There's always those stories about that. So again, it depends on how you look at work, but did it work for the people that were watching them? Absolutely. I mean, in that time was massive and you include what they were doing is that Christian Broadcasting Network had syndication going in different parts of the country and how big they got through not only that syndication, but regular syndication, how exciting those shows were, how they looked, all that stuff. I can see why you would make a case for him. And that's why I have softened significantly on Goldberg as the time has gone on. Because again, you you can't just out of hand dismiss something and a phenomenon that was that big. And whether you want to, you know, depending on how you look at it, because for a lot of people, that would be a Gale Sayer sort of thing where it was like, yes, it was a short you know, sparkle of, you know, incredible, but that's an incredible, you're never going to be able to get back. You know, it's incredible that it's an incredible that you can't duplicate and that was never able to be duplicated again. Yeah. And, and the comparison to ultimate warrior is a great example because, you know, I don't, he's not even still on the ballot anymore. I don't think, but, but I never voted for him. And part of the reason was not only was it this short window of time like Goldberg, which, you know, he's very well remembered for that short window of 87, 88 to like 92 or whatever. But even during that time, he was not the phenomenon for the WWF that Goldberg was for WCW. And maybe people will disagree with me. He never escaped Hulk Hogan's shadow. Um, he never was the guy. And when they put the belt on him is when the company started to tank. So, like, that was not the case with Goldberg. Goldberg was the best thing they had going, especially as the NWO was getting old. He was their ticket. He was their last best hope to staying competitive with the WWF, and they squashed him, you know, which is not his fault. But uh, so that's what I mean. Like, that's why he gets the edge with me over somebody like the Ultimate Warrior. That means something. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. Now, but just uh, as as we <laughs> run out of time, I don't want it to just be <laughs> we spent an hour just trashing the whole system of the observer. <laughs> let, let, let's at least close with this. I, I want to know who are the people. And I know you said you haven't finalized your ballot yet, even though by, by the time this comes out, it, you, it will be. But um, who are the people that you are the most passionate about, like I mentioned Sergeant Slaughter, who are like your projects that you have on here that you're really, really pushing for and hoping get in. Sergeant Slaughter being, you know, first and foremost, I think one of them, um, you know, Rock and Perez should go <laughs> without question. Um, I'll say this as, and I'm, I'm on the fence. I though I don't think I'm going to vote for him this year, but I, spent a surprising amount of time to me uh, racking my brain about Mad Dog and Butcher Vashon because, and I don't know where that came from, but it was just the, I was going back through reading the Mad Dog book and you see the type of money and, and George Shire, oh, I think it's the Shire Minneapolis book that I have over there, how big they were in the AWA. And I, you know, usually give them credit for Georgia, although that was mostly Butcher and Stan Vashon. You know, it's like giving too much credit to Enrique Torres for that time. It's like, well, yeah, you know, Mad Dog was down there, but it was really the others, you know, uh, you know, but I, I never really thought about at length how big they were for really two years it was only about two years but in the awa what kind of business they did and how they walked from that into grand prix and starting that up and going into competition in montreal and i mean multiple ten thousand plus you know in, in 1969 people drawn you know i think one of the magazines it was uh fifth in 1969, as far as the biggest draws in wrestling behind Sheik, Bruno, Dory Jr., and Ray Stevens, you know, the, the Comiskey Park show against Crusher and Bruiser, that, you know, 21,000 people there, you know, just what they were able to do as a team, I just, I never, I think of Mad Dog individually, I think of them a little as a team, and then think of the, you know, the whole kayfabe family unit, but my God, the them as a team like that actually caught my eye and it's something that i want to delve more into you know when it comes to the voting and i can see that becoming a pet project for me 
Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood, everybody oh, yeah. factors in late 82 into 83. And then on through the feuds with Steamboat and, and, and sorry, uh, Slaughter and Cronoodle, then in, in with the Briscoes. But you have to also turn the dial back and look at their feud with Paul Jones and Baron Von Raschke, their feud with Gene Anderson's army, which was the Iron Sheik and Jimmy Snuka and Ray Stevens. And the problem is there is very, very little video that exists of that. Yeah. But before the Rock and Roll Express, what was the preeminent babyface tag team? It was Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood. Yes, Ricky Morton sold like a gazillion dollars. You should have seen Steamboat and Youngblood sell. You know, and I, I, to me, they deserve a lot more credit than they're probably going to get. They probably are never going to make it in and be voted in just because, again, I don't, I just don't think there's going to be enough people that, that jump on them because, again, it's the lack of, it's the lack of talk about them and it's the lack of film that exists of their early run and anybody, anything anybody ever sees, it's always, you know, the Briscoe Starcade match and it's always uh slaughter and Cronoodle, you know, on, on, on uh, March 13th, but everything else, I mean, my God, again, the 20,000 in, in Toronto and popping that territory, they were just to me, I will never not vote for them as long as they're on the ballot. Again, Ole Anderson, I'm on the fence about because I, I have to make that decision on whether I'm including everything else or whether I'm only looking at him as a single, but I will continue to beat the doors for Ole Anderson to belongs belonging in a Hall of Fame alongside Gene Anderson and because of what he did as a booker. I know a lot of attention gets paid to what he did in 1983 in Georgia and in 84 and 85 where it was dead, but... Every promoter that has come along has died on the way, you know, fighting Vince and trying to battle Vince. Right. And what he did at the end should not take away some of the great things that he did as a booker. Same thing with George Scott, I think, is, is like that as well, too, although it's a little bit of a different example. But Johnny Rougeau is somebody that I, I fought hard for. And, and a lot of that has to do with the research that Pat, Pat Laprade has done. But when you go back and look at the influence that he had coming out of you know Yvonne Robert's shadow and taking it to a different level the the numbers that he did between you know the late 50s you know when he came in but certainly throughout the 60s into the 70s into the war when he would come back what he was those numbers stand for themselves i mean they they are incredible the influence he had outside of the business getting into the hockey business and how he was able, and again, I think that some of that stuff, again, it, you you have to level it in your own mind. But, you know, Jesse Ventura, again, you, you factor in some of these other things because, again, we celebrate people that transcend pro wrestling, you know, we, or at least in my mind, we should in this Hall of Fame. And, you know, he's, well, again, you can't give credit to Terry Funk for everything he did in Hollywood and not give credit to other people for what they may have done in some aspect. So I think that actually is a big positive for him, you know, and what he was able to do in the, the Quebec major junior league and the team that he created there. So again, you factor in all of that stuff. I think he's somebody that, again, it'll be interesting because if you're not voting Rockham Perez, you're probably de definitely not voting Johnny Rougeau, but I think he's somebody that absolutely belongs in. I'll probably, I'm voting for Mark and Jay Briscoe because I think they were the preeminent tag team of the time. And I think they were by far the best tag team of their era. And this is not, and nothing against the Young Bucks, but the Kings of Wrestling feud, the FTR feud, we saw it at the end and we saw what that kind of draw could be. And unfortunately, you know, Samoa Joe, Adam Pierce, AJ Styles, Brian Danielson, you name them. They moved on and went somewhere else. The Briscoes never had that opportunity to do that except for to, to go over to Japan and work. And I don't know. I just, again, I'm a little bit closer to them and I am, I am yeah. you know, I have a personal, you know, kind of bias and connection there, but I, I truly think they really were the best acting. They did not sell the most shirts. You know, they did right. not get them in the hot topic. They did not, you know, book PWG and have, they didn't have that. So again, that's nothing against the young bucks. And that's something that should be, when you're considering them, that should be positives, depending on how you look at the business. Again, a lot of what the young bucks 
is is do you like the way the business has turned do you appreciate the style of wrestling that has changed do you appreciate how cards being booked have changed and things like that you know you have to determine that you know whether they were beneficial to the business because there's going to be some old heads that go it, nope <laughs> across the board on any of that stuff. right because I, of the net of what they see as a negative influence on absolutely and yeah. i think you know what doesn't get talked about is the briscoe's being influential in a line of a different style, you know, and this is where you're, again, your Tully and Arns, your Steiners, your Midnights, you know, that's where I think they kind of fit into that category. And the Steiners are, are another group as well, too, that I would vote for out of that category. I have voted for them. I will continue to vote for them uh, for what they did in Japan, the influence that they still have today that still holds up today. And again, I know a lot of this, look, I point a lot of this stuff back to that slaughter canoodle, young blood and steamboat feud too in that name there aren't many better tag team feuds and 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 stories that were told than that one you know almost everything was right all along the way leading into those final matches that they had and then the blow-offs which again didn't do incredibly well business-wise but still did very very well business-wise at a time when that's all Jim Crockett promotions pretty much had was that and Jimmy Valiant, you know, and it was lean times going into 84, but, you know, I give credit to the Steiners for, for that, for everything they were able to accomplish. Shingo Takagi is somebody in the Japanese bracket that I am very positive for. Again, a lot of it's got to do with Dragon Gate and it's where you put Dragon Gate on the list of importance, but Dragon Gate has always been a solvent company. They do not cater and try to go outside of their realm too much. They've been incredibly successful. You could argue that those Dragon Gate six-mans that would come in during WrestleMania season that would be with Ring of Honor, I mean, we started getting the weekends of, of WrestleMania weekends because of those shows, because of right. Gabe bringing in those guys. And look at, the, look at the impact that those guys had and that style of wrestling that trickled down to again, your young bucks and, and other indie promotions and other wrestlers about how much influence they took from that faster style. So him being on top there, being as great as he was, I would argue he belongs in long before Tomohiro Ishii is. Again, I'm not bashing Ishii's uh, reign, but he gets somebody that gets pushed so heavily because of star ratings and this and that. And it's like, I don't know. You give me dollar for dollar, I'll give you, you know, give me Shingo Takagi all day long. And he continues to prove that walking into New Japan and being elevated and being put in a position where if you didn't know any better, he could have been working for New Japan his entire career. You wouldn't know it because of how he's treated there and the respect that he's given. So I and, and his success is there, you know, maybe not at the gate as much because of the COVID times and all that other stuff. But I mean, as far as interest goes, as far as match quality goes, as far as great moments goes, to me, he absolutely belongs in. The people I fight for the hardest are really in the non-wrestlers category. And to me, there's no brainers there. Me the, too. There were three, arguably four no brainers to me. The three no brainers to me are Roy Welch, Morris Siegel, and Bobby Davis. Agreed. Bobby Bruns would be the fourth in that exchange. And then we can go for there. But how does Roy Welch not belong in? Probably should have went in with the, the first original ballot. And we're not, we're in look, talking about these guys. This is not the Hall of Very Good People. I've said that a zillion times. <laughs> no, um, no, no, no. You know, Morris Siegel belongs in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, otherwise it would just be Bob Backlund. There would be one person in the Hall of Fame. And Pretty no much. Right? You know, <laughs> you know, Morris Siegel, anybody that, that crossed him, a funny thing would happen. Things would light on fire. Yeah. You know, and that happened multiple times. But with that said, look at what he built in Houston from 1929 onwards when he got into it with his brother and then his brother goes and promotes Shreveport and he's left to, you know, reorganize the golf athletic club as things were, you know, growing with politicians. He made sure to stay in the right pockets with everybody. He's the one who books the entire state of Texas for right. all intents and purposes. He's the boss. There are other partners involved with that, but he is the man on that. He signs people to, quote-unquote, exclusive contracts at that time that lock them in where they can't wrestle for another outlaw promoter in Texas. You're breaking the contract. Again, 
depending on how you want to look at that, but smart business, smart promoting from his end of things, maybe not ethical or whatever, that's fine, whatever. It's it still, it was a, a key thing that he did, and he did hold on and yeah. hold on to that golf athletic club and make it a successful venture, even when he lost control on the state of Texas and the power started moving more towards Dallas. Sure, the power of Texas was changing, but Houston was still his, and that's why Paul Bosch was able to run with it for 33 years or, you know, with, with Bosch it was about 33 with Siegel. I think it was like about 20 for Bosch. Yeah. 20 years. But one, one thing I discovered when I was researching for the Sheik book of all things was that Morris Siegel, before he became a wrestling promoter, he was in the business of, of waste management. So you can do with that information (laughs) what you will, but he was basically like in, in trash disposal uh, in that industry. Um, but yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the people that you are, are you, that you champion, I do, I'm the same. I mean, um, and it is a lot in the non wrestler category, Morris Siegel, Roy Welch, um, Bobby Davis, who is, you know, the template of the wrestling manager. And I don't even think, wasn't he like re added recently or something like that? I think, yeah, I think he may have been on there or maybe he was in a, he may have been in the like the historical category and then right. got split into non-wrestlers or something like that. But I mean, how do you I mean the ultimate template, you know, Bobby right. Heenan, you know, as far as I mean, there was he was and what helped was he was a worker. And then, you know, again, Wild Red Berry, I think by the time he really became known to be a manager, it was way past the bumping point. But Bobby Davis wasn't. And right. so he was Bobby a young Davis, guy. He was a very yeah, young guy. Get knocked around. And he did have the ultimate rap. I mean, what we see from Bobby Heenan, sure, it was taken to a little bit of a different level, but like that's what Davis would do. As far as on the mic goes with Heenan and Cornette, and you take whoever it is, like that's Bobby Davis, you know, Sherry Martell with what she would do. Again, not directly, but indirectly, that's Bobby Davis. So the success he had with the Grams, the success he had, you know, with Buddy Rogers, because, and I said this on the Voices of Wrestling show, it's not like, well, because he was in the orb of Buddy Rogers, he's going to make it in. We're not voting for Johnny Barron. We're not voting for Magnificent Maurice. We're voting, again, you know, he stands on his own. Bobby Davis stands on his own as a as a person that belongs in that Hall of Fame. And again, I he almost shouldn't even be up for a vote. He's one of those people that it's like, no, he belongs in. And, and how you could argue against it, I, I just don't really know. When I interviewed him, and it was for chic, but for other things. And I finally tracked him down right before he died. And he was pretty old and frail. Uh, it was, and so when we would talk in the beginning, you know, he was very sort of like soft-spoken or just not really kind of short in his responses. But then as the conversation goes on and he gets more, uh, you know, kind of into it, he, you, all of a sudden he starts to get like this attitude and this cockiness and he's putting over Buddy Rogers like he's like he's giving a wrestling promo. But really, you see like his real personality. And it was incredible. It was like I just had a big awesome. smile on my face where all of a sudden he starts talking to me about like, well, I'm going to give you the real dirt on San Martino and <laughs> and Buddy and what was really going on and all this kind of thing. And and, uh, you know, telling me incredible stories about Dr. Jerry Graham and Eddie Graham and. It was like the light was still going. It was beautiful to see, but I, I, I push for him. I feel like I always feel like uh, if if and I think Bill Apter himself would say this if he were here. If Bill Apter is in, Stanley Weston has to be in. He yeah. was like for people that know comic books, he was the Martin Goodman to 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 Bill Apter's uh, Stan Lee. So I mean, like he needs to be in there. Uh, I mentioned the Grand Wizard. I just feel like that's another one of those lapses where it's like. The, uh, a figure that you just look at and go, how are they not in? Look, I don't want to extend this out any further, but Wiz came up in that conversation with Voices of Wrestling, and if he would have lived a year, maybe two years, really, if he could have lived two years longer, he would be getting talked about and be put in a many, in some ways, the same reverence that Classy Freddie Blassie had, because people don't realize how short Blassie's run was in the national WWF before he sold everybody to slick and yeah, it was you know, like two years that was done. Yeah. 
And yes, he had, again, the Regis Philbin connection. And there was, you know, the stuff in California obviously, you know, stands on his own. But if people would have saw the whiz, if people would have heard him, seen the presentation, then looked back and saw him as a manager only enhancing, he was Heenan for the Northeast before there was Heenan. Nothing against other threats that were put with Albano, but, you know, the ones who were foreign threats with Blassie or these other people with Albano, but... Wiz had Slaughter. He had Don Morocco. He had Ray Stevens. Well, I guess that may have been a co-thing with Albano, but you look at his his lineup of, of, of contenders, and many of them oftentimes could talk the same way they were with Heenan, but he only enhanced what he was able to do and what they were able to do. You look at Detroit. Uh, you know, you're a much bigger Eddie Creechman fan, I think, than than I would ever be. But to me, the combination of the Sheik and and and, and the Wiz, uh, Abdul Farouk together, to me, so far trumps what he did with Eddie Creechman. Then again, being trusted to be put in a position because that's another thing. You know, Skolin lasted. Morella was able to last. I wonder if Ernie Roth would have lasted, you know, the running the Northeast and helping out after the whole Abe Ford debacle and him going to the Vachans and, and trying to sell and then having that stopped. And then again, working alongside at that time, boy, Bobby Harmon and Vince. I mean, you certainly yeah. know that story. I think you were the one who told me that story. It had to have yeah. been. Yeah. Like, yeah. That matters. And if he could have made it a little bit longer, I think we would be discussing him a little differently. And it's just, he falls right at a weird time that I'm really surprised he actually does not get more support than he does. Like with Weston and Melby, I would push for them. I demand they be in. You know, I'm definitely voting for Weston as I always do. Melby, it, unfortunately, it may end up being a numbers game on this year's ballot. But like, I mean, to me, I mean, I, I just, the whiz, yeah, man, well, again, he's not Bobby Davis, but he is somebody I would really strongly fall behind. And not only that, but I think if he had lived into the national expansion, like you had said, and I know like there were plans he was going to be, he was going to be managing Paul Orndorff most likely against Hulk Hogan uh, in a, in a, in a program. And so like, if he had lived into that period, I think he would be remembered as the most prominent. He would have been, let's put it this way. He would have been featured the most prominently of all of the three classic old school WWF managers out of Blassie and Albano and wizard. If they were all operating in the mid eighties and they were into the late eighties, the wizard would have been the one who was the most prominent of the three. The, the, the Absolutely. And I don't think history will change all that much because him handing over the baton to a Heenan who Heenan probably would have been in there because he was right. just done with Vern. But I think, you know, yeah, remember people forget Heenan had like missing link and he had, you know, Adonis, I think for a while. And he had, it just, to me, like that would have been, I don't think he would have been, I don't think he would have been more prominent than Heenan, but I think he would have been more prominent than Albano and Blassie in that period. And sure. I think, I think you would have had more of a baton handing to Heenan for sure of yeah. Heenan was, is going to be that next great guy. And that's who he would have probably taken the baton from. And I just, I think that would have been, it's sad that that didn't happen because I think that would really have changed things, you know, and I'm surprised again, I'm still surprised with the amount of local Baltimore, Washington, Philadelphia, New York promos that have come out that people, how do to me, look, Paul Heyman does him every week, <laughs> every week when Paul Heyman Kind of talks like this. You know, I'm doing too much of a Bill Cosby there, but you know <laughs> what I mean when he would get that voice and talking about Roman Reigns. That's the Grand Wizard. That's who he's doing. That's the Grand Wizard. And he, he bumps does. like Lou Albano, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the first person to say that. I think Brian last said it, but he was so right. Um, he bumps like Lou Albano, which is to say not very good. No, thank but, God he uh, doesn't blade or drink like Lou Albano. He just kind of he just kind of flails and tops tips over like a you know like a penguin or something. You know? But um, but yeah, so uh, so that I'm trying to think of who else are my big uh, my causes. That's the word I was looking for. My causes every year, the ones we uh, June buyers because another one I feel like um, one of these people like 
there's no way she should go in before the fabulous moolah, but I don't get the option to vote for moolah, who I know was a terrible person and did all these terrible things. I get it. I understand. But she is like the Mount Rushmore figure of women's wrestling, like with Mildred Burke. And so how, you know, that's a whole other thing. If she, you know, of the people that are on there of that era of women's wrestling, June Byers is the person that's that you could actually vote for that should go in. So I always push for her. There's um, a kid by the name of Ethan Tyler. I don't know if he's a kid or not. I have no idea what his age is, but he strikes me as somebody who's young and full of energy, who has really been banning the drum. And that is also important for anybody out here listening where, I know sometimes it feels like you're screaming into a void and sometimes it's tough to get your own work printed up in places where enough people see it. But if you have people that are on this ballot that you feel passionately about, or if you're passionate about wrestling or its history, you need to go and do the work and try to write about your, your people the best you can and try to make cases for them because that's, look, they may not make it in right away, but it's going to keep people on the ballot. Look at Cowboy Bob Ellis is a great example of that. Right. I can make the case of why Cowboy Bob Ellis is a no-brainer Hall of Famer, but at the very least, he continues to hang on to the ballot because enough people have the interest in him. Sergeant Slaughter the same way, so sometimes you look, it takes one person to go out there and beat the drum. And if it gets picked up by the observer and put on the front page, or it gets put up by voices of wrestling or a place like that, that's got, you know, eyeballs on it. You know, you need to do those things, putting it in, in long, putting it in forums. And again, I've never been good with forums, but you know, the wrestle wrestling classics or if kayfabe memories, which I know Arcadian Vanguard, you know, controls, Put it in places where, again, people are going to see it and you may not look, you have to block out some of the reaction you may get. But if you feel strongly about a buyers or whoever it is, you got it. Sometimes it takes one person to just beat the drum and continue to make the case. Because I've heard a lot of people point back to him going, he keeps beating the drum so loud. It was hard to ignore. And now I think about this. Pat LaProd, I think with, with oh, yes. Johnny Rougeau in a different way, but the same sort of thing. If he's not beating the drum, well, nobody's going to beat the drum. So him doing that has not only put Johnny Rougeau in a position where he may make it in, but like he is... He is a strong possibility, I would think, you know, to make it in, at least if there were Vegas betting his odds. That would be great. Yeah, he's a good example of someone who does that. Um, you know, we mentioned Rock and Perez, definitely for sure for me. Um, Wild Bull Curry is another one um, because, again, I, uh, knowing the history and knowing how important he was, I do feel for even though I venture to say he's widely forgotten today, but in his time, he transcended wrestling. He was somebody that people knew about, even if you weren't a crazy wrestling fanatic. Like back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, he was known. Um, he was a hardcore, what we now call hardcore wrestling pioneer i mean only in wrestling but he's got the dubious distinction of he was the guy that first started hitting people with chairs basically i, I you know i'm not going to say that he was the first to ever do it but he was the one who made it a popular part of wrestling you know what we now think of as wrestling you know people i venture to say for a lot of people the first thing they think about when they when you say pro wrestling is guys hitting each other with steel chairs <laughs> so so while, while we have wild bill curry to thank for that and God damn it, he belongs in the Hall of Fame for that. <laughs> you know, I'll go back to Roy Welch. Again, not the best person in the world, surely, and probably should not be held in the same regard as, say, his grandson, Ron Fuller, holds him to. But, you know, <laughs> you would expect Ron Fuller to maybe exaggerate on his family's history. So, yes, you have to go kind of outside of that and you have to put in some hard work because these were people that like the business closed and even as the business opened up they would still shun your pro wrestling illustrated and places like that in, in your your weston after victory sports magazines they just never wanted it because they were happy with their own little kingdoms and what they were doing there and again you put too much light on something sometimes you see the roaches scurrying away but, yeah and, and roy know. welch roy welch was a shadow figure even in his you know when he was partners with nick goulas it was like oh, yeah. nick goulas was like the face of it and roy welch was sort of like the the silent partner i guess you could call it
Somebody said they always like, you know, finding Greeks in different locations that could could be there and that would be the front. And, you know, obviously the most known of it being being Goulas. But, you know, he was the one who trained the brothers, you know, and you saw their takeover of the business as it slowly kind of, you know, built upon itself where he settles in Dyersburg. And then at some point, sure, it was not, I don't think, 15 or 17 states, whatever they claim, but you can claim a large part of West Virginia. You can claim the tip of Virginia. You can claim the tip of North Carolina and the amount of influence that again, in the forties that they had on the tag team scene and on the scene in, in Charlotte, in the Carolinas, how important that was. They had uh, Tennessee, they had Alabama, they split Mississippi right down the middle, you know? So they had the, the Eastern side of Mississippi. You had parts of Missouri and they, where he was able to open up shop, put family members or trusted people in the in the in the front windows of those places while operating the marionettes, you know, from above. I to me, he is a pioneer no-brainer for the Hall of Fame. I, I really do. And again, it's always surprised me that again, it, it I understand it because of again the family and you know some of the hidden stuff. But now as we sit here in, in 2023 going on 2024, to me, he he's in. There's no question that he belongs in. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that the Welch Fuller whole dynasty is sort of like the most uh, extensive wrestling family ever. I mean, you know, of all of any wrestling families into us. But again, because like a lot of it is is under the surface of what people know about. And certainly, when I I went to the uh, CAC and the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, I've been talking to. Um, there's a first cousin of Jeff Jarrett who has a book out about Teeny Jarrett. And he comes to a lot of these things. And I've talked extensively with him. And he brought his mother at one point, who is, I believe, um, I'm trying to get it all. I think she's Jerry Jarrett's sister. And um, yeah, the stories about Roy Welch make your hair fall out, you know, of the things. <laughs> and they knew they were there, you know, uh, just wild, wild stuff. Uh, you just have to think, you know, okay, we can't uh, push the moral clause of the Wrestling Hall of Fame too too far, or or there'd be almost no one in it. There would literally be no one in, and it's like again, you go into that. You know, did Chris Benoit flip out? Yeah, he flipped out. He lost his mind. That was horrible, and I can see why people wouldn't want him in the Hall of Fame. Also, now let's talk about people that operated every day very clearly as sociopaths, as psychopaths mm. yeah. in this business and the damage that they did to their own families. You know, again, I don't know how many families Roy had didn't, you know, <laughs> well, that's part you know, of it. Right? Of the other Welches had multiple families. So it's like, I mean, it, it just, this is, and times are changing. Obviously the, the culture has changed. The business has changed. Society's mores and th things change. And we're not going to probably have a lot of these, things associated with 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 people now you know at least not as much i mean because again the entire structure of the wrestling business has changed right but you also have to balance some of that stuff with again should somebody be in a pro wrestling hall of fame and, and roy welch and morris siegel two great examples of that yes they and, absolutely should and that's great you know for moving forward and i say that about a lot of things it's great yeah. for moving forward we live in a time where there's more transparency. There's more accountability. It wasn't always like that, and I think you you, you tread into dangerous waters when you and when you have to judge every past time period and the people in it on the standards and levels of transparency of today, rather than try to completely rewrite all of the history. Uh, it's better to focus on moving forward. You know, we're not going to yes. tolerate a Roy Welch today or you know uh, the people like that we we tend to kind of weed those people out and with good reason but you can't uh what's the word i'm looking for you can't legislate the past you yeah. can't adjudicate the past that, to me that's a fool's errand um also Especially when you're relitigating against today's eyes and you have to look at things with today's eyes and hindsight on other things and see how we build away from that but you can't also sometimes hold a torch to all of that is right. again 
because be careful about doing that because somebody's going to be doing that to you 30 years from now, 40 years from now as well, too. You got oh, you know, to take it for, again, you have to have some, you know, awareness of, 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 again, moving forward and what, again, what actually matters. That's true. There is kind of a hubris to that, to just assuming that, you know, no one is going to judge you unfairly in the future or, or kind of in, in ways that are unfair or, uh, or don't uh, really that you can't foresee presently. Yes. You, you kind of have to have that, that forethought. That's why I go easy on, on, on the past sometimes, maybe too easy, but for that reason, um, it, you'll drive yourself crazy. If yeah. you do that, I also think it's a fool's errand to try to contain you and me to a one hour conversation Can't because be we've now we've gone grossly over my my typical time limit. But that's OK. I might maybe this will be a two parter. <laughs> First time I've ever done it. Who knows? But even if it's not, um, th this has been great. I love to I, I could talk about this stuff all day and we almost did. So, uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, so if left up to our own devices, I mean, we can start getting into debating Joe Higuchi and who should be voting for a guy like that who, you know, hey, as a referee, as an office worker, I mean, how do we know what Joe Higuchi really did for a lot of the regular voting, you know, clientele? You know what I'm saying? So it's like, again, there are, you can take one name and you can start building off of that and it will dovetail into other stories and it will dovetail into other candidates where, there is so much bile and anger and frustration and this and that it gets thrown around. And I'm a passionate, emotional person, so I, I get it. But I also think that there's a place for, again, more this, <laughs> more yes. of these types of conversations, because I think it helps just the, the overall as well, too, because I know we're not alone. We may be in the minority, but there are people that take pragmatic and, and intelligent looks at things and, and takes the time and, and takes the effort to put into having a normal conversation and having a debate as opposed to, again, a debate show. Well, I've championed normal conversations on this show for almost two years now. Um, and the last word I'll say for myself on it is that with the Hall of Fame stuff is I'm going to say it here. I'm going to take my stand, my goal, my dream goal for my book, Irresistible Force, my new book that I'm working on now, is that it will result in getting Gorilla Monsoon put back on the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame ballot. And I believe if he goes back on, he will go in in a landslide in 2023 or four or five or whatever it is. That is my dream goal. I'm going to say it now. I was going to ask you about that. I was going to ask you about Gorilla Monsoon going back on once the book is released. I will be one of those people that lobbies to put him back on because, again, you could look at the numbers off of the work. There are the Wrestling at the Garden books. There's a lot of really good information out there about attendance and things like that. But it's the behind-the-scenes operation of— It's everything, yes. That to me is, and again, this is where, again, like the guys like a, uh, like a Joe Higuchi and like, you know, again, there probably should be a, there may need to be more of a tighter group of people that can speak on those people more to know what kind of, how important that influence was behind the scenes and why they were more important than somebody else. That's why I'm, the book is going to be, I know is going to be fascinating because I know what you did with the Sheik one. And I have a feeling this book is even going to be more popular and be in some ways more important because the WWE is still around. And again, those tentacles were, birthed way back when and he was a very important part of that and i just it's that is going to be fascinating and i think you're right i think i don't know about getting him in there we'll see how it goes but i think him being back on the ballot and getting support once the book is released and people read it i think they're going to have a different view because i think he's one of those total package people you can argue like i'll entertain arguments where you could even say just his wrestling career alone okay maybe Maybe not worthy. I would even say that's not that's not uh, beyond debate. I think it's debatable even just based on the wrestling alone and the business he drew and the prominence he was. He was the WWF's first monster heel. Uh, I think that's really important. But but even if we take that out, just 
the total package of everything that he contributed to the business makes it an easy choice. I think part of the problem is in years gone by, we know this, and you know it, it's actually going to be addressed in the book. There was a big observer bias against Gorilla Monsoon. He was trashed in that publication, <laughs> trashed for years. So yeah. then when you have the readers of that very same publication voting, you could see why he would have been kept out. But I think the softness of time and nostalgia and the memories and, you know, looking back and the reappraisals. And now you you hear today talk of him being one of the greatest announcers of all time, talk of him and Bobby Heenan being possibly the greatest announced team of all time. Again, I will say this as somebody who remembers, that is not an argument you would have heard put forward very often back when they were active. Hell no. Especially among quote-unquote smarter wrestling fans. Not at all. But as time goes by, the reappraisal, the sort of like, well, maybe we were unfair to those guys. Maybe we were too hard on those guys. I mean, they get compared. This is very apropos. They're compared to people like Abbott and Costello and Laurel and Hardy who are classic comedy teams and me being a fan of all those guys i will tell you those guys were not highly regarded when they were around they were considered they were considered you know just sort of like cheap pops yeah like they were like the adam sandlers (laughs) of their time they really were like this the serious film critics really looked down on those guys but now for people that care you would never dare to say that those guys were anything but you know the greatest of all time at what they did and I think some of that happened with Monsoon and 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 the Monsoon Heenan uh, pairing too. Monsoon and Dusty. I don't think anybody got it worse than those two. I think. Right. And, Another and great I, example. A newsletter reader. I was a magazine reader. I, again, I, I saw the newsletters. It just wasn't something that interested me at the time. You know, in my fandom of, of liking wrestling. But to go back and see how they were savaged and, and Fuji, and there were some others, you know, as well, too. But when it came to announcers, you know, David Crockett and Gorilla Monsoon, now David Crockett gets talked about with, man, his enthusiasm level. And, you know, Vince Vince Jr., you know, yeah. was a terrible announcer, I always thought. But now you look back and it's like, you know, well, he was selling the pr- – okay, however you want to look at it. The team of Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heenan, even if you, you know – slagged off the you know he hit him in the you know octubral perturbance or whatever and bobby he hit him in the head you know like that was part of the, the, the to me that worked and again monsoon on his own monsoon working with ernie ladd monsoon working with hayes monsoon working with you know who's on prism uh, uh dick uh, graham graham you know again like it's not great it's not the worst i wouldn't vote him in for that but like the team with ian enan my God, I, who can, who's got any issue with that? I mean, to me, that's nobody talks about Jesse and and Vince and Bruno in that same regard, you know. So a little to a lesser extent with with Vince and Jesse, but really, uh, to me, when people think about that era of WWF wrestling and you think of the immediate soundtrack, I mean, to me, it's 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 Heenan and Monsoon. Yep, absolutely. And so hopefully, I will help to turn the tide and that will be that will be what they remember me for the man who helped get gorilla monsoon in the wrestling Maybe observer that's why rocka didn't get in the hall of fame people heard him doing his his announcing and they're like i can't vote for this guy i'm taking my shoes off i'm gonna enjoy myself vince my uh, favorite thing about him is that he constantly calls on the air he calls vince jr over and over and over and over again junior well let me tell you junior that I think it must have been driving him insane, but he's not going to say anything. Because that's another thing, because I guess did Vince not, he really didn't like being called Vinny, did he not? By Certainly by anybody from a certain era, after a certain era, he really didn't accept it. But like, yeah, oh, he's with the Vinny and the Junior. (laughs) The Junior, but the Junior is even worse. And that, you know, and I've learned that Monsoon continued to call him Junior and took very great pleasure in calling him junior because sometimes he would call him little junior because he knew that he could do it. That's why he did it. You know, that generation is gone. There's no, there's nobody left to challenge old Vince. That's, that's something that he's lost. Kayfabe was on his license plate, but you know, BMF could have been just as easy on gorilla monsoon's license plate. If push comes to shove. 
Yep, and that'll that will all come to light in my book for sure. The man who was so feared by so many people that he never actually had to even lift a finger. That's the level of fear that there's almost no stories of him getting physical, you know, with people, but he didn't have to. So anyway, <laughs> Mike, I I was going to say I, we could do this all day, but I already said that. So I feel like I've said everything. No, but I, I we could easily do like four more episodes on this topic, but um I think we might have to finally stop here. Um, but this has been great. We should be cracking on that wrestling news thing that we do. That's too. right. I got to get to the wrestling news. I got I got articles for PWI. I got the cover story on Tony Storm. I got I got nice. things happening here. Nice. You know, yeah. My and, and that book that I've been plugging endlessly. Yeah. You know, all that kind you of get stuff. that. I got to talk to Alvarez in a couple hours too. Oh, uh, nice. Tell, tell him I said hi. Maybe. Wait. Yeah, tell him I said hi and and uh, and. Uh, oh, that's right. I got to be nice uh, because of the connection here uh, right. of, of of the battle of the Bryans appearing on your coming it's to not, your ears very soon. It's not a battle. Don't characterize it as a battle. And it will, but it will have already been out there by the time this comes out anyway, and people will see. It was a very amiable, friendly conversation that we had. So just like this one, exactly. Um, Thank you so much, and, and 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 we'll, you know, it's so funny because we talk constantly, so it's funny that we're like having this very like. Well, thank you, Mike. This has been well, great. It's kind and of funny. I mean, we 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 are in contact with each other constantly, but it's again, it's that different era thing. It's different when you're actually face to face talking to somebody, as we essentially are now through right. the miracles of video. But it's like you know, again, a lot of people are like, you know, did you talk to this person? Yeah, I talked. No, they sent like a quick text or something it's still like no it's still different when you're right in front of somebody right so that's right kids listen to the old people talk this is what it was like this is what it should be like again and uh we hope that when the wrestling observer uh inductees are announced this year that maybe some of the favorites that we mentioned will actually go in that will make us both i think very happy wouldn't you it agree will. it will absolutely absolutely There you have it, folks. Part two of my conversation with Mike Sempervivi on the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame ballot for the year of our Lord 2023. Thank you for bearing with me for two parts there on that topic. I know this is the first time we ever did a two-part episode, so I hope that you enjoyed it. Thank you, Mike, once again for that. And we are going to keep rolling along because next week for episode 97, I've got the one that I've been promising now for a couple of weeks. It's Dave LaGreca of Busted Open Radio. He will be my guest on next week's episode of Shut Up and Wrestle. Lots of other good ones coming for you listeners. I've got Steve Dworkin, who I've mentioned before, who was a wrestling fan his entire life and then later came to work for USA Network as an engineer. Lots of great stories there. I've also got on the way. A few people you might know from the Arcadian Vanguard family, Jace Nakarado, will be making his way to Shut Up and Wrestle, as well as Steve Generelli, frequent co-host of the Stick to Wrestling podcast. He will be on his way as a future guest of this show, and as well, the 100th episode is coming up in a few weeks. Got something very special planned for that. I will be revealing it very soon, but do keep listening to the show, and where can you listen? Our website, suawpod.com. You can also find it wherever you find podcasts. That means Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Podcast Addict, you name it. If you want to support the show on my Twitter page at Brian R. Solomon at the top of the page, you'll find a link to contribute via Venmo or Cash App, if you'd like to give a few pieces of pocket change in the direction of this show, that's the place to do it. If you want to do it via PayPal, you can find me at Solomon at yahoo.com on PayPal. Also, as we mentioned at the top of the show, join the Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. And there's lots of cool stuff happening there, like the Bruno and Hogan post that I just mentioned. Some other projects that I work on, of course, the wrestling news from Arcadian Vanguard, 
Listen to it every morning, especially if you want to hear more of the voice of Mike Sempervivi. That's the place to go. TheWrestlingNews.com, as well as the YouTube page for Arcadian Vanguard. You will find it there. My recently published books, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic, as well as superheroes, the history of a pop culture phenomenon from Ant-Man to Zorro. Get them wherever books are sold, as well as if you're interested in autographed copies. I've got a few of those. If you want to reach out to me via email at brianrsolomon at yahoo.com, we can talk about that. The magazines that I write for, as I mentioned at the top, Inside the Ropes magazine, you can find at insidetheropesmagazine.com. Where else? Also, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, current issue on sale now with Tony Storm on the cover, the March 2024 issue. Get that and any other previous issue at pwi-online.com. If you're looking for me on social media, I can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. My author page on Facebook is Brian Solomon Writer. And on any of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my author website on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been... Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that each day should be unwrapped like a precious gift. So long, wrestling fans. 